Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I am Will, the funky chicken. And I'm Leah, a fox. Trot. Why are we such distinctive dance moves? You'll have to find out later on in the episode. But for now, is everyone sitting comfortably? Can you hear us? Can you hear us clearly? Are we making sense? Do our voices come across with clarity and the sort of expression which helps you to interpret the words we're saying? Do we sound like the kind of people who you might trust? We're 35 episodes in or something by now, so hopefully there's at least some kind of trust involved here. Certainly if you've been listening this long, I'd hope it's because you like us and feel our opinions have some value. But maybe you have a friend who just didn't really get on with it because they were listening through, like, bad headphones? Episode two or three, I will admit the sound mixing on those, I've gotten better. This is because someone has done some research, it's the sort of thing we talk about on this podcast, and the research suggests that the sound quality that information is delivered over has a noticeable impact on how trustworthy you might find it. Now just think of all the slick promotions you see out there with adverts with impeccable sound quality, people talking about how Flash will clean your toilets better than anything else, how Haribo will bring your broken family together, and then compare it to the slightly bad ones you come like ITV3, that dubbing's a little bit off, where it's a bit crunchy, it's a bit of distortion. That affects how you perceive the information that's being given to you, and that's just in advertising. Turns out with science, the same is true. I mean, you might suggest that with the example of those adverts, the production values overall have something to do with it, because, you know, some of those slightly dodgy, deep-in-the-satellite channels type adverts, they look very nice, but the dubbing is off. So even though it sounds very nice, there is that visual disconnect. But this study has specifically looked at the sound quality all by itself, and specifically the sound quality of some science communication. And of course, it being the year of 2018, everyone, even the people involved in this, their own press release, are ready to jump about waving the flag of false news. This time kind of as a justification to say that there's a lot of misallocation of trust, a lot of distrust of news sources out there. And how do you convey factual information in a trustworthy way? Quality has a lot to do with it. This research, published in the March 20th edition of the Science Communication Journal, is by Norbert Schwartz, co-director of the Mind and Society Centre at the USC Dornsife College of Letters, Arts and Sciences, and co-author Erin Newman. This does seem to be just one of those little psychological phenomena, like the thing where people are considered more likeable if their names are shorter and more easily pronounceable, where essentially being able to take in the information that's being given to you with a little bit less effort because the sound quality is better, your brain decides that means it's just better information. Even Schwartz himself notes during this press release, if I search for myself on Google, I find tons of videos of myself giving talks and some are poor quality. The video camera is too far away, there's no mic, and it looks terrible. So why not find out exactly how much this perception of quality affects the perception of trust implicit in any science communication? Now, the way that Schwartz and Newman went about this was selecting two YouTube conference talk videos about physics and engineering and showed that to 97 trial participants. These were then altered using iMovie, trimming them down to just a couple of minutes apiece and messing about with the sound quality. So they had one video with good sound quality, one with poor sound quality. 
participants then asked to rate the talks from 1 to 5 for worst to best on questions about the talk and the speaker themselves. And wouldn't you know that when the video is of a poor quality, when the sound is of a poor quality especially, viewers think that the talk itself is worse, that the speaker is less authoritative, less intelligent, less likeable even. And the same is true in a second experiment with 99 other participants looking at the sound quality for NPR Science Friday interviews with geneticists, physicists, cutting them down to a couple of minutes, messing with the sound quality, and the same thing bore out. As soon as there's poorer quality in the channel of communication, the science itself is viewed to be of a lower quality. And this is all tying into that idea of fluency, making things easier, making them more familiar. Our brains immediately perceive that as being more trustworthy, regardless of any factual or logical or real-life factors. Okay, so we're going to try a little experiment here. We're going to say some facts and going to mess about with them. So let's see if you believe me when I say... It's raining outside. It's not very nice weather. It's mid-April, so I suppose it's going to be... (coughs) 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 It's going to be... The weather's quite bad. Uh, But we're indoors and we're doing... I'm sorry, dear, but this experiment has no ecological validity. Oh, what do I know? I'm not a scientist. You're literally, you are the scientist on our show. Okay, but like... I'm here to be the not scientist. Okay, but me bumbling my way through that sentence there probably didn't inspire anyone with anything, and it's certainly not going to make it into any iTunes promotional videos that we make. Whereas, if I sit upright and say... Well, we're sat indoors, it's raining outside, so all the better that we are in here, in the warm, in the dry, talking to you at home, or wherever you might be. That just sounds a bit nicer, yeah? I'm just saying, we've got no way of collecting responses. If you thought that the first thing was a bit pants, then let us know at EurekaNerdcast at Twitter.com. Now, there are some things that are going to affect the channel and the quality of the communications, like the camera, the microphone... But when it comes to -to face-to-face communication, how about being as trustworthy as you can? Now, Leah, you have been doing performance and broadcast for some time. I imagine looking good on the camera and sounding good on a microphone has come up. Sounding good on the microphone definitely has. Looking good on camera, you can only do so much about. Not looking mad or bored on camera is more the aim. As a start. But some... Handy voice coach tips that I can deliver to you. Stand up straight as though a string is pulling you from the top of your head, as tall as you can. Drop your shoulders. Keep your arms to your side. Keep your legs about shoulder width apart and stand balanced. If you start popping your hip, you crunch down the thorax and there's less space for air to move. Breathe right down into the bottom of your lungs and speak from there as well. If you put your hand on your stomach when you breathe, you can feel your diaphragm moving. And you need to bring your voice from there. Open your mouth wide. Treat every word as important and every sound as important, particularly the consonants. Smile, that helps. And take your time. If you're presenting something, slow down your speech to the point where it starts to feel a little bit slow for you. 
to other people, it will still sound natural, and the natural tendency to speed up when you get nervous is then balanced out a little bit more. And if you want some more great speech advice, I'm here, I will work for tips. So for all you aspiring YouTubers, podcasters, science communicators of every stripe out there, stand tall, breathe deep, and make sure you've got your equaliser plugged in like I didn't for the first three or four episodes. It really shows. It turns out we were just using the internal microphone on the laptop the whole time, and oh boy. Oh boy. You spent money on microphones, and then you you weren't using them? Well, I was using them, but wrong. Okay, well, good to know that you've learned from your mistakes now. Some of them. You know what we were saying about how people can hear it when you smile? And how quite often it comes up that you're more likeable when you smile? It's a good sign of liking and likability is, hey, this guy's liking something. Definitely seen in Cosmopolitan or one of those type things that smiling broadly can make you up to eight times more attractive to people you want to find you attractive. It turns out it doesn't just make you more likeable, more attractive, and sound better. It also might make you cool. Now let's think about some cool dudes for a second. Probably like one of the top cool people in the world at the moment is Kanye West. His entire business model is being the coolest dude. And he famously does not smile in photographs. It just wouldn't look as cool. How about historic cool dudes like James Dean, photographed looking surly around motorbikes a lot of the time. Not known for his smile so much as his dour, dramatic performances. But according to new research from the University of Arizona, if you do smile, even compared to pictures of the same person, smiling makes you look cooler. This study is published online in the Journal of Consumer Psychology and comes with a picture of Caleb Warren, lead author from the University of Arizona, with a big old smile on his face. It does look like the kind of smile you get on school photo day when you've been in line for too long and you sit down and they go, smile, and, you, and you've been waiting so long you've sort of forgotten which muscles to use. The plain grey backdrop on this does lend to the school photo day general vibe. He's been smiling too long and it's stopped being natural, I think is the vibe I'm getting. Maybe he just smiles all the time so he looks like the coolest dude. Even though it doesn't look like the most comfortable or natural smile, he does still look quite cool, so good job, Caleb. Now, the way they went about finding out whether or not people find smiles cool or not is asking a panel of participants to view print advertisements for a clothing brand, the model in the advert smiling or not smiling. Models included well-known celebrities such as James Dean, again, historic cool dude, Emily Didonato, who I don't know, and Michael Jordan, who I definitely do know from Space Jam, and other unknown models in their endorsing either well-known or unfamiliar brands. Then, trial participants rate the extent to which the models seem to be cool on a seven-point scale. A neat science communication tool there is having a seven-point scale, not six or eight, because then you can have a definite middle undecided, and it a good Likert scale just it ticks my boxes in just the right way. I really do hate it when you're taking surveys and opinion polls and stuff and they're like, oh, rate right from one to six. And you're like, but I feel entirely neutral on this issue. Thank you for the seven point Likert scale, Caleb Warren. So they rate that seven point scale of coolness based on smiling, not smiling pictures, which one they think is the cooler. And consistently, smiling models are cooler than the inexpressive ones. 
there was only one exception. In situations where the people pictured are being competitive. They've shown pictures from weigh-in press conferences for MMA and the inexpressive faces were rated as cooler in that very specific situation. Something about the conflict, the hostility there of not betraying any emotion or just looking pretty mean, then yeah, you can see how the cooler guy in that situation is the guy with the biggest frown on his face. But if you want to be heard and have people listen to you, then stand up tall, breathe deep, and smile. But don't tell other people to smile, especially not random women on the street. That's, uh... Oh yeah, that is not a cool thing at all. And in fact, you might see some of these same performance tricks played out around the town. If you're ever out in Bristol, you'll see lots of people stood up straight, breathing deep, smiling, and wanting to talk to you about all manner of things. Often giving them money for good causes. Sometimes they're taking your money for interesting causes. Sometimes they just want to have a very long chat about something very specific, which you've probably not heard of before, but it's going to change your life. But out of all of the things which people have approached me in Bristol to talk about and have just a moment of my time, none of them have quite yet got round to asking me if I believe in Stargate. Now, why this is pertinent to this particular story is Adam Frank, Professor of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Rochester, and Gavin Schmidt, Director of the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies, have been thinking about what might have gone before. Now, any sci-fi fans out there will tell you well that there were the dragons, of course, there were the Atlanteans as well, there were people who built the ley lines. There are those lizard people who live in the centre of the Earth from Doctor Who. Oh, and Battlestar Galactica, that was a thing. There are so many fictitious sources for life that has come to Earth at some point, or life that started on Earth before humans, some kind of ancient civilization which we've just built on the bones of. It's most of the plot of one of the Science of the Discworld books. And at least half a Mass Effect, I think. But the question that has been asked is, we think we are the first advanced species on the planet, but... How do we know? Now, for those of you playing along at home, yes, this is a real research paper published by two genuine scientists. It's not just that one boozy evening you've had in with all your housemates talking about, yeah, but how do you know? You don't know. You don't know. But they have reached pretty much the same conclusion, that we can't be sure. We can make some pretty good assumptions, though. The question has some application in perhaps an exobiological context. If we land on an alien planet, what might we look for to suggest that there was civilization here? Well, some of the main markers for human civilization on planet Earth have been various isotopes that we've produced, coming from all the nuclear testing that started in the late 40s and 50s and has kind of churned out with a lot of nuclear power stations as well. But how long will that persist? We're talking about the millions of years timescales. Indeed, the press release is illustrated with a picture of some dinosaurs being civilised, driving cars, reading a newspaper at a bus stop. You know the kind of thing. Given that most of the statistics we think we know about fossils and process of fossilization, I say think we know because there's not really any way to test it, Statistically speaking, it's very unlikely that even a single example of our species will have fossilised. 
at all with the time that we've been on Earth. So what else might we have left behind? If we're talking, say, 10 million years in the future, what will be left to tell anyone who comes to visit the Earth that we were ever here? Well, something that the authors, Schmidt and Rochester, suggest is why not all of the plastics, synthetic pollutants, and even things such as steroids, which will be geochemically detectable for millions or maybe billions of years? I mean, there's enough plastics showing up already and making it a lot harder to watch any sort of Blue Planet show because, oh dear, the things that we have done. Chances are we're not going to make it to Venus and find a Burger King cup lying around there. Other brands are available. But still, the idea that there might be some machined or tooled or produced non-organic compound would be a pretty fair indicator. If someone else crash lands in the Atlantic Ocean in 10 million years, they'll probably find a nice thin layer of sediment which is full of plastic. Maybe future fish will have co-evolved some kind of plastic-based iridescent scale system, which sounds almost cute if it wasn't environmentally disastrous. I mean, that's really getting, like, very sci-fi. I think it'd be more likely they'd have just sort of managed to start pooping it right out. Maybe that too. But you can't get much more sci-fi than what Schmidt and Rochester call the Silurian Hypothesis, which is to say that there was some kind of global-spanning civilization on Earth before humanity came along. By and large, they say, well, probably not. It does raise interesting questions of what to look for when we do make it to other planets. In fact, if you click through to the extra information, we will link directly to the research paper, which ends with quite a charming paragraph here at the end. Were it to be true, it would have profound implications, and not just for astrobiology. However, most readers do not need to be told that it is always a bad idea to decide on the truth or falsity of an idea based on the consequences of it being true. While we strongly doubt that any previous industrial civilization existed before our own, asking the question in a formal way articulates explicitly what evidence for such a civilization might look like, raises its own useful questions related for both astrobiology and the Anthropocene studies. Thus, we hope this paper will serve as a motivation to improve the constraints on the hypothesis so that in the future we may be better placed to answer our title question. Now, while we're talking about concepts that would fit right in in a science fiction story, how about a cosmic gorilla? It's made of space. It's cosmic. Okay, so I'm stuck somewhere between Gorilla Grodd from the DC Universe and Del the Funky Homo Sapien from the first Gorillaz album, when he's kind of like a cartoon embodiment of hip-hop. Tell me more. You ever seen that experiment about attention? You're instructed to count the number of times the people in the video pass the ball between themselves. And then at the end of the video, they say, how many times did they pass the ball? Also, did you see the gorilla? Whilst you were busy counting passes and passes between one person and another, a man in a monkey suit walks out, pummels his chest, and then exits stage left. And something similar, according to researchers at the University of Cadiz, might be happening when we try to discover intelligent non-earthly signals. Indeed, to the point where we just might not be looking in the right direction at all. As one of the authors, neuropsychologist Gabriel Delator, says, what we're trying to do with this research is to contemplate other possibilities for beings from other dimensions that our mind cannot grasp or intelligences based on dark matter or energy forms which make up about 95% of the universe and which we are only beginning to glimpse. There is even the possibility that other universes exist, as the texts of Stephen Hawking and other scientists indicate. Which is pretty sci-fi. 
he points out that we tend to think of other intelligent beings through our own perceptive and conscious sieve, and that this is a very limited view. We have no idea what might be out there. So imagining that it's probably a bit like us and uses radio signals to communicate over long distances might be completely off base. It's a very anthropocentric view of the universe. When you think of even out of our solar system, the Earth makes up a very small portion of the total mass, and humanity makes up a very small portion of the mass and timescale of planet Earth. So why should anything else look like us? Just thinking about what's on planet Earth. Can you imagine trying to communicate like a tree, using entirely airborne hormone signals? Once upon a time, we talked about how terpenes are the most common form of language, bacteria communicating through these microbial smells that we have no way of perceiving. We can't tell anything about one another from our farts, except for maybe what we had for dinner. As Delator continues, Our traditional conception of space is limited by our brain. They have in fact included an image of the Okata Crater, which is always fun to say, from the dwarf planet Ceres, which is famed for its bright spots. And if you look at this picture, there's very clearly some regular geometric shapes. It's just your brain filling in the gaps. The phenomena of pareidolia, where people see faces on toast, or squares and triangles on distant planets. So if there is, after all, somehow, deep in the geologic record, a trace of some pre-human global civilization, maybe we don't even know we're not looking for it right enough to not see it if we put the two of these together. That sounds about... I mean, it's almost incoherent, but luckily we've just talked through all the information we needed to understand them. Or maybe there are aliens looking out across space trying to find some kind of indication of life beyond their planet as well, and they keep seeing these weird radio signals and this... No, that's, that's probably nothing, right? Never mind. Move on. No, they're looking for communications via manipulation of gravity and dark matter... They haven't even considered that radio waves might be useful for that. Who would ever use sound and light to communicate? That's that's just nonsense. I'll tell you what, if we do see anyone stood up straight, breathing deep, smiling and speaking from their diaphragm, wanting to tell us all about extra-dimensional beings who have our best interests at heart but can only communicate by means of our empty wallets, then maybe we should give them a go. Or maybe not. But for now, seeing as it's just us down here on Earth, we should probably go about taking care of each other and trying to preserve the life on the planet that we do have at our immediate disposal. Gosh, that would be nice. But if you've been watching the news at any point in the last, oh, say, 40 years, you might have picked up on the fact that there's some stuff going on in our planetary environment that might not be for the best for everyone involved. However, what you might not know is that this isn't the first time it's come along. Homo sapiens, human beings, have survived climate change before. Our ancestors survived climate change before. But maybe not on the same scale as we're dealing with here. Research from the University of Montreal looks at an isolated case set in the foothills of the Phlegrian Fields in southern Italy, which is a little bit west of present-day Naples, which once upon a time was devastated by volcanic eruptions, some 40,000 years ago, in fact, and how did anyone survive these harsh conditions, the weather changing all around them? They buckled up, 
and they work together. The archaeologists gathered tool fragments, analysed the flint they were made of, and found that some had been brought from hundreds of kilometres away. The suggestion is that the trading networks that brought those stones all that way are a big contributor to the continued survival of the people who were part of them. And Julian Viel Salvatore, Professor of Archaeology at the University of Montreal and co-author of the study with Italian colleague Fabio Negrino, says that it used to be thought that the super-eruption just outside of Naples wiped out most of the early Homo sapiens in Europe, but they were able to deal with the situation just fine. They survived by dealing with the uncertainty of sudden change, and that having a link to people living far away meant that they had the social option of depending on people that they'd built relationships with. The broader the network, the easier it was to survive. So there is a mirror to this study at Mount Toba on Sumatra in Indonesia, where a super-eruption 75,000 years ago was once thought to have come close to wiping out the entire species. Which is pretty sci-fi. And while that has now been pretty well disproven, in both cases the archaeology has shown that things went rather smoother than we expected. So if you think of all the sci-fi shows and all the movies, all the films where things enter a bit of a crunch in a climate-changey, end-of-resources, end-of-time sort of way, everyone gets very selfish, very insular, starts scrapping over barrels of oil and canteens of water. Whereas if we all just get along, then humanity as a civilization, as a species, can survive Although we should probably not let it get to that point. Yes, we can use that cooperative ability right now to not completely stuff up our entire world. If you want to hear more on how to do that, go listen to episode 31 of our podcast. It's the one called Save the World. It, uh, it highlights a few ways of going about doing exactly that. But while we have the time and we have the planet, then we should enjoy all the offerings that it brings from distant vistas to mountaintops to even the human ingenuity that has built us a comfy apartment to stay out of the rain here on this sunny April day, and every aspect of nature that should be celebrated, like flowers, the laugh of a baby, blossoms in the trees, and some dumb-looking birds. Honestly, birds of paradise are like my favourite example of how sexual selection is bloody bonkers. There are, in most environments, Many pressures deciding whether or not you get to successfully pass on your genes to the next generation. It can be predators, it can be disease, it can be competition with other members of your species. When you are a small black corvid and you arrive on an island and the island moves further away from the mainland you came from and leaves you in an environment where there's basically nothing that's trying to eat you, and there's plenty of food, so you don't particularly have to be, like, super good at getting the food to make a pretty nice living. The primary pressure on your development as a species becomes, what's sexy? And as the ideas of what the ladies think is sexy diverge, you end up with birds of paradise. What's in this year? Is it gigantic tail feathers? Is it iridescent patches? Is it... Funky moves, bobbing up and down, making weird noises with my throat sacks. Why not all of the above? Some combination of these things is part of pretty well every bird of paradise's wooing bag of tricks. But they're all distinct. Indeed, 
that's what made them distinct in the first place. And, turns out, one of them, we have decided, is distinct enough to make it a species all of its very own. In fact, it's probably a bird of paradise which you, dear listener, might have seen on the internet, because it's quite a famous one. You know the one with a big round face and the big blue curve under it? It looks kind of like a smiley face and it's hopping around and it's flashing its blue markings on a black oval to a very bored-looking female. It's that one. Well, now a distinct species from that one. It's a very different type of it where... The oval wings are more of a pointy crescent, and the warbling noises are a little bit different. This is now determined to be the Vogelkop, superb bird of paradise. Different from the greater superb bird of paradise, because of its own weird dancing. Indeed, while both birds have previously been referred to under the same label as the superb bird of paradise, Ed Scholes, with the Cornell Lab of Ornithology's Birds of Paradise project, says... After you see what the Vogelkop form looks and acts like in the wild, there's little room for doubt it's a separate species. The courtship dance is different, the vocalisations are different, the females look different, even the shape of the displaying male is different. And if you want to find out more about these superb birds of paradise, then you can head to birdsofparadiseproject.org. But we're coming up on the end of our episode, so whilst you're sat at home, up straight, breathing deep, smile on your face, thinking about dinosaurs and aliens and looking at birds dancing about, let's take just a moment to reflect on your health. For example, meditation. Apparently it's good for anxiety. It has been suggested. I mean, I thought that was kind of the whole point. And the research from Michigan Technological University seems to suggest that, based on their study of 14 people, that sitting down, doing some meditation and just kind of like chilling out for a bit is good for your anxiety and your blood pressure. Who'd have thought? I really like the title of this, actually. Mindfulness meditation reduces aortic pulsatile load and anxiety in mild to moderately anxious adults. Would you describe yourself as moderately anxious? Currently, I'm moderate. In other health news, the pressing question of why don't kids use their asthma medicines? Mostly, they forget to, or they don't want to, or they think it's a hassle. Their doctors and their families tend to agree. And it is useful to investigate reasons for this, because with chronic treatments like asthma, like diabetes is quite a good example as well, a lot of your care is self-directed. Like, hey kid, you might not want to, and maybe it's a bit of a hassle, but... You could literally die if you don't. It's for your health. And finally, the absolute shocker, the revelation, the revolutionary, the unexpected, unforeseeable, the unbelievable life expectancy significantly worse in deprived areas. Now, I'm pretty sure this one has been investigated before, but I guess it's always good to just really drive that home. Everything is crap if you're poor. And on that note, if you do want to tell us all about your own funky dance moves, your ideas of what kind of civilizations came before humans, or if you want to hire us for act coaching for your own science communication events, then you can find us at EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. If you want to tell us if you trusted us in this episode because we sound so cool, can you hear us smiling? Aren't we just the best? You can find us on Twitter as well, at EurekaNerdcast. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, all those good places. And if you want to help other people find us cool and trustworthy and approachable, then... 
then leaving likes and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice is a really great way to do that. Maybe ease off the alien stuff in the reviews, though. It might look a little bit weird. We're a science podcast. Aliens come up, right? Maybe that's the way they're trying to talk to us. Is it all in the iTunes reviews? <laughs> that would be highly inefficient. Is that how we can tell that we've reached a really um, advanced form of society? All our communication is done through podcasting. I sort of feel like that is my life now. But nonetheless, that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Mm -hmm.